Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the NJS Bay's Blog Talk Radio Show, New Jersey's Education Forum, a show dedicated to creating a conversation among those of us in the education community and beyond on the important edu- education issues of the day. A, co- a conversation that brings state leaders to you, and I hope that you feel free to join us in this conversation. My name is Ray Penny, and I'll be your host for this morning. A couple of ground rules. First, we will not be using the chat room feature of the show today if you're looking on the web. And if you are interested in calling in, a few things you should know. To call in, dial 1-347-989-8904, 1-347-989-8904. And when you are ready to make a comment or ask a question, press 1, and that will indicate on our switchboard that you are ready to ask a question. Uh, on, on another note on that, on the switchboard, I have uh, someone operating the switchboard. Her name is Lauren, and she will get your name and the topic that you want to discuss. Also, if you're on the phone line, I will ask that you turn down the volume on your computer since they uh, do not. there's a seven-second delay and it's a little bit confusing. And finally, I probably will not be taking calls in the first five or six minutes, but I will be later on in the show, so be patient and hang on and listen. Today's topic is charter schools. While charter schools are not a new idea in New Jersey, the law creating them was passed in 1995 and schools started opening shortly thereafter, with the election of Governor Christie, they have moved to the forefront of his educational agenda. Along with vouchers, they are a vital link to his belief that parental choice is important in education. Unlike vouchers, though, which most organizations and individuals have a black and white position on, uh, charter schools is more in shades of gray. Some people support certain areas of them and have other issues with them. I'm really looking forward to this morning's discussion, and it's not just because of the topic, but because of my two guests are very knowledgeable and passionate about education. First, I have Assemblywoman Myla Jacy from the 27th Legislative District, which is located in Essex County. I should also know that Assemblywoman Jacy also served on her local board of education, the South Orange Maplewood School Board. Welcome, Assemblywoman. Thank you, and uh, thank you for having me. Oh, our pleasure. And in addition to the Assemblywoman, I have the president of the Princeton Regional Board of Ed, Rebecca Cox. Welcome, Rebecca. I'm glad, I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, Assemblywoman, uh, charter schools have been in New Jersey, as I said, before a while. What benefit do you see that they bring to public education? Um, well, that's an interesting question and uh, one that I uh, do address on a regular basis. And what I o- always preface my remarks with is, my strong belief that uh, charter schools are not a silver bullet and they're not the solution to the issues that we're facing in public education today, but I do see them as a vital part of the solution. And what I mean by that is that 15 years ago, when the charter school law was passed here in New Jersey, the idea behind it um, was to create the opportunity within the public schools Uh, to be innovative, to have lab schools, and uh, to try out different approaches, strategies, um, models within the public school sector uh, to address issues that we're facing in terms of the achievement gap, in terms of uh, of providing 
um, an excellent education to students who, for one reason or another, are not um, benefiting from that. So that's where I start with charter schools. And uh, I think that probably the greatest disappointment in our 15-year experience here in New Jersey is that while we have examples of some charter schools that are really doing a wonderful job, and we also have some charter schools that I would move very quickly to close if I had that authority, and that's another, perhaps we can get to that later in the program. I think um, we will. But, but the, the greatest disappointment uh, for me is the fact that we have not been able to figure out a way to have successful charter schools um, share their successes and share their approaches with regular public schools that are struggling with the same demographic of students. Okay. Um, and now for, this is on my own perspective. It seems that the discussion on charter schools the last year or so is shifting. I think most people have accepted that they're in some form or another we're going to have charter schools and they're part of public education. But um, now we're uh, discussing aspects of how they're governed, where we locate them, what's their focus. Uh, it actually, I guess it's more of the details of how they work. Would you agree with that assessment? Um, I would. I would. And that's the main reason that I've been working for almost a year now on uh, an authorizer bill to address the issue of better oversight, more careful review of applications, and um, more careful uh, work with charters that are opening, um, because I think I think again one of the lessons learned um, over the past 15 years is that we have not uh, the DOE, the Department of Education, which is the only um, authorizer currently in the state of New Jersey, and that's an unusual position to be in. The DOE and the Commissioner of Education don't have the capacity, I believe to do the job that they should be doing in terms of uh, in their role as an authorizer, in terms of oversight, support, and uh, vetting of applications. Um, Rebecca, I know Princeton has a, a charter school in it, and your demographics are probably a little bit different than uh, others. Uh, what is your concern about charter schools from your perspective? Actually, I would like to say that right now the charter school law is overly broad and doesn't have enough focus, and I agree with uh, the Assemblywoman that there really isn't any oversight of their performance, and I think that's what's gotten us into the situation we're in now. As um, an I district, we do have a uh, low-income population that we serve, but we don't have as much of a low-income population as many other districts in New Jersey, and what we're finding is that a well, as a wealthy district, we are a target for boutique charter schools because we have a high per-pupil expense. So if you were a charter school planner and the state uh, granted charters to anyone who wanted to open one in any district, they would naturally choose one where they would get the most money for their students. And I think that we really do need to talk about how much this is costing the sending districts, and that hasn't been part of the dialogue at the state level at all. And I've been trying to raise awareness that uh, sending kids out of district costs uh, people almost twice as much as it does to educate them within district. Uh, Assemblywoman, her, it's interesting. 
I, I think the whole concept behind charter schools was for, for lack of a better term, in districts that were failing or uh, had a, a lot of at-risk students. Is it a different type of charter school, different function when it goes into a district like uh, Princeton? Well, I think I think Rebecca raises a good point, and um, I would go back to her, her her first statement about the fact that the charter school law is overly broad. I would agree with that, and I think that, and I have recommended to the chair of the assembly um, education committee that as part of our um, review of issues in public ed right now, um, one of them needs to be that we need to look at the original charter school law and to evaluate it in light of 15 years of experience and see where we might um, need to uh, tighten it up um, and uh, look at the impact. You know, we have these 15 years of experience now. One of the things that um, no one's really talking about, but something that I would like to raise um, to the state level of discussion is we need to we need someone somewhere somehow to evaluate all the data that we have from 15 years and to look at a number of things. We need to look at uh, funding. We need to look at impact on uh, sending districts, whether they're uh, suburban or urban. Um, the suburban districts uh, to this point have kind of been an anomaly in that we don't have a lot of charter schools in those districts. But with the funding issue uh, being, uh, you know, the pool of, of resources available shrinking, it's drawing everybody's attention to where's the money going and who's being served and how well are they being served. So I don't pretend to have the answers to these questions, but I think that um, these are the kinds of serious questions that we need to be investigating, and we need to get away from the rhetoric of, you know, we're going to open a lot of a lot more charter schools and solve whatever the issues are, whatever the problems are here in New Jersey, along with, um, you know, vouchers and. Uh, um, I don't think that either of those are solutions, and. Um, I think we need a much more careful and deliberate examination of what has our experience been, what have we learned from that, and where do we go from here. Yeah, I agree, actually. Yeah, I agree, and that's what I really appreciate, um, the Assemblywoman's uh, attempts to get a dialogue going, because what I'm seeing at the state level is just a sort of like a headlong rush towards uh, – awarding charter schools to anyone who has two legs and a pencil instead of looking at the needs of the sending district, which is the which is the place where you really have to take a look at what's going on. And when I testified to the Assembly Education Committee a couple of weeks ago, I actually talked about how we should have some kind of benchmarks or standards um, that allow charter schools to continue to operate. That is, are they doing a better job than the uh, – the schools that they're taking children from. And that really hasn't been happening. And as our Mercer County representatives know, many of the, some of the charter schools, I can't say many, some of the charter schools in Trenton are not actually uh, educating the children as well as the schools that they left. And I find that extremely concerning. And I've talked to members of the Trenton School Board who are concerned about it as well. So it's not only 
a question of money. It's a question of serving the students who need the help the most. And that's when I find this whole conversation about charter schools um, sort of not looking at the right issue. And if you take the time to read the original charter school law, it, it basically has three parts. One is you need a charter. The second part is you need to let in siblings of kids who have already gotten into the charter school. And the third part is uh, that, that the student population needs to reflect that of the sending district. And I think one and two are, are pretty easy to solve. And it's the third one that the charter schools have not had any success about. And that's the one I'm most concerned about, is that they are not, uh, they do not have huge populations of special ed, if any at all. You can't tell that from the data on the Department of Ed website. And they don't have um, many other populations that need the help. Uh, assembly one, she, uh, Rebecca brings up a good point, because I've heard this issue before, and it, sometimes it's hard to get the data, be, and it's hard to compare. Uh, are the kids the same in the area of, of, in Essex County that you see, or does it seem to be that they're slightly different population? Um, are you asking, do the charters okay. reflect the students from the sending district? Yes. Oh, um you know, it's it's interesting. It is hard to get that data. And, uh, for example, most of the charters in Essex County are in, uh, in Newark. And Newark is a very large city. If you look at neighborhoods, then, yes, the, the charter schools do reflect students from the neighborhoods in which they're situated. Uh, because it's very difficult to get kids from one part of town to another part of town. Um, you know, within the public schools. If you look at uh, charter schools and, you know, if you look at who's in the school and you look at the city as a whole, they may not reflect um, the city as a whole uh, in terms of, of ethnic background, racial background. The other issue that is hard to get at is when we look at free and reduced lunch, usually that's grouped together. Lately we've been seeing some breakout numbers in terms of how many kids are on free versus kids on reduced. And there is a difference in income level there. And we are seeing some differences. Now, one of the, one of the I've visited a number of the charter schools in Newark, and um, most of them are doing pretty well, um, and in fact doing better than their, their, other, their neighborhood schools. However, one of the criticisms that I hear all the time is, well, that's because they're able to cherry pick or they're able to limit who comes to their schools. And actually, um, having been to a lottery, I believe that the lotteries are legitimate. But the difference is, over time, um, what happens is, if you have if you have a student coming from a particular family, and that student has siblings, those siblings are automatically um, admitted to the school if they wish to go there, as Rebecca pointed out. So what starts to happen is uh, you you have a family and then you have a group of families that are committed to the school, that they're attending the school, they're committed, and they understand the culture and expectations of the school. And so then the school begins to look different, perhaps, from the general population. And you have fewer... Um, uh, slots open, 
and um, you have more involvement from the families because they've made this commitment. So it's a complicated issue. I think if you looked at the first year or two of a charter and who their population is versus five or ten years down the line, you would see a dramatic difference. So the problem with the discussion in the media, the problem with the governor's um, remarks about charter schools is that it's very superficial and it does not um, take into account the complexities of what we're talking about. Um, and we have a tendency not to want to take the time to do that. And, and I think, I agree with Rebecca, I do not think we should be rushing headlong into, um, you know, opening hundreds of charter schools in the state of New Jersey and then um, kind of dusting off our hands and saying, well, we've taken care of that problem. Um, that's not the way to do it. Uh, I think it, it's very unfair to students, to parents, to communities, um, to open charter schools without very careful consideration because if they don't work out and they close, then you've created other problems um, in the community. Um, you know, we were talking about the, the students are a little different. Now we have a situation where, at least from my perspective, we've seen Districts have like a single purpose where they're focused on a, a language immersion or gender or even special ed uh, issues. Uh, Rebecca, what are your feelings on, on that? Because that, that draws a different type of population. Uh, right. Well, we uh, in, in Princeton, we believe that discrimination of any type is, is morally wrong and should be discouraged. And uh, here in Princeton, we do have, um, we're coming up with a Mandarin charter school, and, which is called the Princeton International Academy Charter School. But what it is is a dual immersion Mandarin program. And it draws from us and West Windsor Plainsboro and South Brunswick. Now, we know because we offer uh, a four-year course of Mandarin in the high school that it draws a 60% racial and ethnic. Um, the uh, West Windsor School District starts their Mandarin program in fourth grade. And we we know that uh, just from our experiences that a school that is focused on Mandarin will naturally draw a, um, many racial or ethnic Asians. And we think that this is just a segregative effect on our student population. And we think that one of the strengths of a public school is that the children are going to school with everybody in their community and not just a select number. Uh, Assemblywoman, this is an interesting probably situation for the legislators to deal with too. I'm not sure if this was anticipated when the bill was uh, first passed 15 years ago. What are your thoughts on this? Um, well, I wasn't there 15 years ago. Uh, you're right. I think I think that this is a real. Um, issue, and I think it's one that we need to face head on, because I would agree that um, you know the, re the one of the main reasons that I support public schools so strongly is that that is the one place where uh, we have a, a leveling effect in in terms of who goes to school and who has the opportunity. It doesn't matter who you are, how wealthy you are, who your parents are. Um, if you're going to an excellent public school, that's your shot. That's your opportunity to um, to have a better life, to, you know, 
have a better job to fulfill your dreams. Um, I believe that very deeply, especially as one of 11 children. And all of us went to public schools, and we've all been able to do the things in life that we wanted to do because we got very solid educations. Um, Here in New Jersey, we're already a very segregated um, community as a whole. I mean, because of, of housing patterns, because of so many different school districts, um, we're very segregated both racially and uh, socioeconomically, and that troubles me. And um, when we see a situation such as uh, Rebecca was describing, um, that should raise some major red flags for us. Uh, the idea of Mandarin immersion is not a bad idea, but I think we have to really look at what's the impact on the area where the school is being located and, yes, who, who's going there? Who's going to be attracted to going there? And what does that do to the schools um, who are not involved? I think that we, have, we may have – I've been thinking about this issue for a while. I don't have an answer to it, but perhaps we can look at the, um, the example of the, the legislation that we passed um, not too long ago on inter-district public school choice – because in that legislation, there is wording that talks about the impact of students who leave a district to go to a choice district um, within the public schools. Um, and if there is a disparate or damaging impact, then the decision can be made to not allow it to happen. So that may be you know, the direction we need to look at. I think that's part of looking at the original legislation and the language there and perhaps the need to um, define it more carefully or to tighten it up, um, again, in light of the experiences that we've had over the past 15 years. So, I, you know, and, and again, one of the areas that, that needs looking at is uh, the criteria for opening a charter school. Yes, which will get me to, I guess, let's look at authorizers. But, Rebecca, I just want to clarify, your point is also, besides the the segregation aspect of that, is that you're concerned also that it will have an educational impact on the students in your district because you have programs that might be affected by people leaving. Yes, yes, we are we are uh looking at paying almost five million dollars um this coming school year to our two charter schools and we also have a two to three million dollar budget gap that we have to close. Uh the effect of a shrinking budget on the charter school is a trailing effect because the per pupil expense is averaged out over the last couple of years difficult to explain to our parents when we cut programs in the traditional public schools is that the charter schools are not uh, um, directly affected. They're affected. They have more time to plan. They're affected in the next two years, possibly. So um, that is a tough thing to get across to uh, voters and parents, that there is this giant budget item that we have no control over. And they find that very frustrating. Yeah, I, I've been at some of the committee meetings that has been an issue with some of the groups. Um, Assembly, when you brought up the issue of authorizers before, because uh, I think what we're talking about now is who oversees these, and there's probably a consensus, Rebecca would probably agree, that uh, 
the DOE may not have the capacity to watch all the charter schools. I think some people question their capacity on a lot of uh, <laughs> Am I supposed issues. to laugh here? <laughs> I think, uh, <laughs> fine, I, as far I, as I know, I, there's there's four people authorizing charter schools, and uh, I think that the Department of Education really has to examine its priorities. We, uh, Princeton is a high-performing school district. We have very good test scores, and we have been subjected to two uh, QSAC examinations uh, in the last three years. And we would have to question why the Department of Ed is spending any time examining a school district that's doing fine when it really needs to be focusing on these intractable problems that the, the Assemblywoman has just talked about, which are very tough to solve and need all kinds of brain power to figure out. Assemblywoman unauthorized, uh, Rebecca, I will mention, I think there's legislation to make QSAC longer at this point, I think seven years, if, yes, if you're a high-performing school district which uh, I think you would probably support. But Assemblywoman on the authorizer... It came out of committee yesterday. Oh, it did come out, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, what about uh, your view on authorizers? Because I know you have issues with the capacity of the Department of Ed to handle a lot of this work. Um, okay, so I've been working um, almost a year now on this issue of authorizer. Um, you know, who should be an authorizer? What do they do? Um, how are they going to be funded? Um, who, you know, how do they become? How does one become an authorizer? And um, in order to make what I hope will be an intelligent decision, um, we've been we've had hearings on this. We've had uh, national experts come and talk to us about, you know, authorizing, and we've also been looking at how is New Jersey. Um, the same or different from other states, and where are where do we see the successes? Um, and where I think where it will all come, the point that it'll all come to is this: um, I think we are in agreement that the Department of Education and the Commissioner um, don't have the capacity to do the job that's needed in order to make sure that. Uh, every application is properly vetted, that every charter school that is allowed to open is monitored carefully um, and evaluated, and when charters um, fail to meet their mission statement and their goals, that they are quickly closed. You know, we would like to think that that's the case right now, but we know that it isn't. So um, I, I'm working on a piece of legislation that we're pretty close to um, uh, introducing, which would allow um, public institutions, four-year uh, institutions of higher education, such as Rutgers or Montclair State or Rowan, um, to apply they would have to go through an RF. We would have an RFP, and they would have to go through a process of applying to become an authorizer. And during that process, they would have to show capacity and interest and resources um, that they would bring to the table to accomplish this. And because I think that there needs to be, <coughs> excuse me, my office is freezing, uh, and because. I think we need um, 
transparency and public accountability, um, part of the bill recommends that this presentation be made in public to the state board, and then the state board would make a recommendation to the commissioner. Now, the commissioner and the Department of Ed are currently still in the business of being an authorizer, but I think, you know, my guess is that um, the department would gradually take itself out of this business because they don't have the capacity, although they have the, the interest. And so what I would foresee is, and I don't see a lot of, of universities coming forward to want to do this kind of work because it's, it's hard work, it requires um, resources, and it's a constantly kind of changing um, arena. And um, where we see really good authorizing um, for example, in, in Michigan and in New York and New York State, um, we only see a couple of, of institutions of higher ed even interested in doing this kind of work. And it's usually related to um, universities that uh, have schools of education that train teachers and are interested in being part of the reform uh, movement that we see nationally. Yeah, what would be the... I don't see... I'm trying to look at it from a university. Uh, what's the benefit to them? Because, you know, all... Yeah, I'm sure their budgets are very tight, too. So, and as you said, it takes a lot of... Uh, it's hard work. Is there any... Would it be financially beneficial to them directly, or is it indirect, most of it? It would not be financially, I can't see that it would be financially beneficial to them. I know that in the case of Rutgers, for example, they already have, um, and I never get this right, the Center for for Effective School Practice. And, mm -hmm. through, and they are funded primarily through grants, um, and their work has a lot, they've done a lot of work with charter schools, with startups, with looking at innovation, um, strategies and different models. They're very interested in doing this because they see that as an they see this as an extension of the work they're already doing. Um, in terms of the funding piece, that that of course is a difficult piece to um, to resolve. In New York, um, the state legislature every year um, allocates uh, funding for for the budget in the budget for um, the authorizing work. And unfortunately, you know, no surprise, we heard from um, from representatives from New York who said, you know, when the economy is strong, that's great, but lately it's been a continuing battle to even maintain their level of funding at the same time that um, uh, the number of charter schools and the pressure to open more has been increasing. So the funding issue is one that we're still working on, so I'm, I'm not really at liberty to talk about that. I don't see it coming out of the state budget because I recognize that the money is not there. But um, we have some ideas about where it could come from in addition to grants. I'm sorry. This uh, is where I just have to laugh because, uh, as everything else does um, with the state regulation, the who's going to pay question comes down to the local school districts. And uh, 
I, I have a real problem with expanding the, the number of authorizers when the original law hasn't been fixed first. I think th I think this whole, uh, the governor's strategy of throwing everything on the wall and seeing what sticks is really not a good approach for education in general. And I understand the need for um, an authorizer that actually knows what it's doing, and it would be nice to have, let me see, a local vote or even a local forum on on forming a charter school in a community because, it, after all, it is the property taxes of the residents that support the charter schools, and right now they have no say. And I don't see uh, expanding the number of authorizers actually helping with that particular issue. And I did talk to a member of the Assembly um, Education Committee about this and, and basically asked, okay, well, why can't the local residents vote on a charter school? And the answer was, well, then they would never get passed. And I, I have to tell you, residents of Trenton and Patterson, they need alternatives. They would approve charter schools. Now, people in towns like Princeton, maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they feel like the local schools are fine. So I really do think there's no chance for a local dialogue, and um, expanding the number of authorizers doesn't address that, that problem at all. And it also doesn't address the fact that the law doesn't require charter schools to prove that they're doing better than the schools are taking students from. And I find those two issues to be really compelling and a really significant part that needs to be a significant part of the discussion, although I do know there's quite a bit of horse trading that has to go on when you do any legislation, but I'm very wary of anything that doesn't have an actual funding mechanism attached to it because then it will invariably end up in the laps of the local school districts. Well, I can tell you I, I hear I hear what you're saying. Um, I, I was a board member myself yeah. for three terms, and I um, am still very involved here locally, but I can tell you that the funding that we're looking at would not come from the local school district. That would be wonderful, and uh, parents here would really appreciate that. Uh, she brings up, a, it is interesting, uh, should the local community have any role in this? I think she's probably right. I think people in Trenton or, Pat or Newark probably would support some type of charter schools, uh, but it's a little different animal when the property taxpayers are paying for it. Is that, does that make a difference in how we create them, Assemblywoman? In how we create them, I don't know. Well, you know, they, I mean, this is an issue that really had not come up until fairly recently, and I think one of the reasons, of course, that it's it's coming up. It, well, there are two reasons. One is um, money, resources, and everybody is feeling um, particularly stressed and and um, under resourced. And two, because we are seeing more applications for. Um, I think Rebecca called them boutique-type schools, and I, I think there's some truth to that. Um, I, you know, I think we have to look at the idea of what does, um, what does the local taxpayer, what's their role, what do they have to say about this? Um, I don't know that a referendum is the is the way to go, but I do agree there has to be a much more transparent and public vetting of those applications. Perhaps, and I'm just throwing this out there as an idea, one of the things that we've been thinking about is, or I've been thinking about, is perhaps what we need to be looking at is charter schools on a larger um, regional basis if they are addressing a particular issue. Uh, for example, um, w one of the things we've been talking about here in Essex County 
is um, vocational-focused uh, charter schools because our county vocational schools are not, uh, believe it or not, they're not as well-funded as our regular public schools here. The majority of the students who attend them are students from the former Abbott districts, but they are not funded at that level, um, nor are the charter schools funded at that level if, in fact, those are the students who are attending their schools. So there, there are some, there's some real gaps and disconnects that have to be addressed, and I think that some of that goes back to um, looking at and perhaps um, rewriting to some degree the original charter school law. Uh, I know it probably doesn't have a lot of support in the legislature, but uh, I've seen people question uh, the accountability, the public accountability of char some charter schools. Um, and they they're pushing we're supporting having local boards have that option uh so if the board in Newark wanted that has a building they want to try a charter school, they can do that and be the local authorizer, not run this charter school uh Do you think there's a support for that in the legislature um well, in my bill um the i am I am proposing that local boards be allowed to become um, authorizers. They don't become an authorizer automatically. They would have to, first of all, vote to do that, but then they would have to also present their ability to do this um, before the state board. So I, I don't envision a lot of uh, school boards and school, local school districts wanting to take on that kind of responsibility, but I could certainly see um, in in some of the larger cities, I could see a school board saying, "Yeah, we would like to um, to do this," and they could either run, operate the charter school charter schools themselves, or they could hire um, an operator. For example, in the city of Newark, um, the KIPP uh, schools already operate four charter schools with a goal of, I think, growing to 10. And I could certainly see a working arrangement between them and the the Newark School Board. Uh, that, that's a, actually a good segue. Do you anticipate us seeing more uh, going from, like, the mom and pop to the Walmart-type uh, charter schools uh, in the sense that they are uh, businesses running them and not just a single entity operating their charter school in a neighborhood? Is that something that either one of you anticipate being a model? I think it's a model the governor wants. Well, yeah, I don't like the idea of, of businesses running schools because um, I, I reject the notion that schools should be run more like businesses because children are not products and widgets. And, and uh, again, it goes back to the complexity of education and and um, individualizing education for children. I think that there are some things that schools c could do better in terms of how their operations are run, but not when it has to do with, with the children or the curriculum. And I'll give you a quick example. Um, uh, organizations such as KIPP, Uncommon Schools, there's some others, um, they benefit from the fact that they're part of national networks of schools. Um, and so they have experience and they have resources and they have uh, 
a process or, or a method for training their school leaders and how they run their their schools. For example, and here's a lesson learned, I think, that we could share in the regular public schools. Um, in the KIPP schools, they have a school leader, not a principal. I mean, and it's more than just a name difference. The school leader is responsible for being the instructional leader in the building and for um, driving the mission of the school. They have an operations person who runs the school in terms of the facility and, you know, uh, supplies and resources and that kind of thing. And I think that is something that we really should be looking at because I think I've always thought, for, you know, from the time my kids started school, that the expectations, our expectations currently for what a principal should be able to do. You know, a principal has to do, um, be the instructional leader and um, evaluate the teachers and um, work with the parents and be a part of the community. And we have so many expectations. And yet they're also supposed to be in charge of making sure that, you know, the building is clean and the boiler is working and the supplies are ordered and the snow is removed from the sidewalks. You know, it's it's virtually an impossible task. There was a very good article in the New York Times a couple of days ago talking about the need to turn around schools and restructure schools and failing um, communities. Um, but the reality is we don't have the school leaders to do it. Um, and so, you know, perhaps one of the ways to to uh, address that problem and to attract excellent school leaders is to change the role and the expectation of what that person is supposed to do. So that's a long-winded answer, I think, <laughs> to your question. But, again, I think it points to the fact that this is a really complicated um, issue. And it is it's very not, not going to be solved by just right. opening a bunch of schools. And, and, I, and I actually would just like to add something about the hmm? salaries. Like, obviously, you attract really good people when you pay a nice wage. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to point out that charter school superintendents or heads of schools, whatever they call themselves, are not subjected to the state cap on superintendent salaries that has just been enacted. Well, and they're not I, tenants. They don't have I'm sorry. Correct, they but have, they're the leader of the school. Yeah, and they're in the principal's um, they're they're in the principal category, and I think that's coming. Oh, I certainly hope so. But people also don't realize that even well-known charter school figures like Jeffrey Canada of the Harlem Children's Zone makes almost half a million dollars a year. And I don't think people really understand that um, one of the things that happens when you form a lot of charter schools is you're giving up a great deal of taxpayer oversight. And I, I don't think I can stress that enough. I don't think the oversight is good enough now. I don't think um, the state government has a really good idea of what people are being paid. As a matter of fact, I know they don't because I've submitted public information requests to the Department of Ed, and they are unable to tell me the salaries of people who do not receive um, public pensions in charter schools. And that, I just find that disturbing. You could find out the salary of any secretary in my district by calling up the Department of Ed or looking on the website. Yeah, that brings up an issue of governance, and we're coming to the close. Um, I've met a lot of uh, charter school trustees and because they come to some of our training sessions, and they're very nice. Uh, they're like board members, really concerned about kids. Um, who is, I guess the, the last question I'll throw out there is, who, who uh, observes 
how are school, the school districts uh, held accountable? Because I know some of them are doing great, but some of them are struggling. So how do we hold them account, accountable? Do they all have a CUSAC-type uh, monitoring today? Are you, you don't mean school districts. You mean the... No, the, the charter schools. Okay. Um, well, that's part of... That's a very important role that the authorizer plays. And because right now the Department of Ed is the only authorizer in the state of New Jersey, it's not surprising that there, you know, that information is not as available um, and that we feel, that a lot of people feel that there's not enough oversight and not enough transparency. Um, okay, uh, Rebecca, that, you have about 15 seconds. Would you agree with that? Um, definitely there's not enough oversight or transparency. And as a matter of fact, when we're asked to comment on a charter school forming or expanding, uh, all we're allowed to do is write a letter to the Department of Ed. Okay. There's that no brings public us to meeting the end of our show. And I'd yep. like to thank our two guests, Rebecca Cox from Princeton and Assemblywoman Myla J.C. Uh, for their insight. This is not going to be my last discussion on charter schools. Uh, I think both speakers have indicated that. And I thank the listeners for tuning in. And Thank I you hope so to much. see you next week. Thank, Thank you. And, uh, goodbye. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Bye now.